Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be beginning a new study that will take us over the next few weeks. And so if you have uh, a Bible, uh, you can begin to turn your way to Esther. If you don't have a Bible, don't have an app on your phone, you can find a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to take that home with you. Let that be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you're not intimately acquainted with, with how to use that, there's a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to direct you where to go. The large numbers are going to be chapters. The small numbers are going to be verses. This morning, we're going to spend some time in Esther 1, verses 1 through 9. But before we get there, I want to do a couple of things to set up for us the book of Esther. Probably for many of us, we spend the majority of our time uh, reading the Bible and reflecting on it from a New Testament context. And so reading the Gospels, reading Paul's various letters, the general letters, uh, the book of Revelation, and so on. And so when we come to study the Old Testament, it, it takes a moment for our minds to recenter, to refocus, to understand where this story falls within the broad sweep of revealed history, kind of what is God doing at this point. And so I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. I want to talk about uh, theology of providence, but I want to begin with just a couple of issues uh, with the book of Esther in general. If, if you take home this afternoon and, and you think, look, I've never encountered Esther before, and so I'm going to begin to read Esther, you're going to have a suspicion, and probably your second or third reading through, you're going to have it confirmed that there is no mention of God in the book of Esther. And so the first reading through, you're going to say, well, this is a good challenge. I'm going to find it. And so you're going to read through. You're not going to find it. You're going to read it a second and a third time. Look, I've read it many times now. It's not in there. And so then you're going to say, look, there's no direct mention of God, but certainly there's a mention, or I remember this feeling that there's kind of this religious overtone. Well, one of the things we also don't see is we don't see them called to, uh, to, to prayer. We don't see this idea kind of caught up in there. And so it's, it's this really interesting, compelling book that I think accurately describes and reflects the contemporary of the situation that we currently find ourselves in. When you read through the Old Testament, I think there's this temptation. You go through Exodus and you think, I mean, God is this uh, flame, he's this cloud, he's this visible thing we can see. We know that he goes in and he meets with Moses. And so we, we recognize that's foreign to our context, right? And so we expect that that would be different. But what Esther shows us is this the same or similar situation that you and I have, we go through. That we are not currently seeing God in this column of fire, that we are not currently seeing God in this cloud, but we are experiencing the hand of God in our lives. And often, the best way we see that is in a rearward reflection upon our lives. We look back at our lives and we say, ah, I can see how this decision led to this decision led to this decision, and how God brought this special friendship at a certain time to affect this change in my life or so that this change might be affected in their life so that God might be glorified so that men and women might come to know him as Savior and Lord. And so that, that kind of gets into the idea of the theology of providence, that God is bending, actively involved in the unfolding elements of history. In the Old Testament, we see that God is actively involved in moving and directing things towards the coming of Jesus, his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. And then within us, in our current context, God is actively involved in the unfolding events of history today, even today, 
all things leading up to Christ's coming again. God is not absent. He is actively involved, and he's doing this by virtue of, of something referred to as, as providence, divine providence. So let's look just quickly at two examples in the Old Testament. Within Genesis 37 through 50, we read the story of a man named Joseph. Now, Joseph, if you read through this account of his life, and I would encourage you to do this later, you'll find that not well loved by his brothers. And so he's a little bit proud of himself, or at least that's how they take it. So they say, we'll fix you. They throw him in a pit. He's sold into slavery. He's sent into Egypt, and he finds himself rebounding, and he's working for a guy named Potiphar, and life couldn't be better until Potiphar's wife sets her eyes on him. Joseph stays pure. He gets thrown in jail again, and he's thinking, oy vey, what's going on? Well, in the midst of jail, Joseph's there with a baker and a cupbearer. So it's a great trio, and these guys are describing dreams that they're having. And so the baker said, oh, I had this dream. And Joseph's like, looks like things aren't going well for you. You're going to die. And the cupbearer says, well, I had this dream. He says, things are going to go really well for you. You're going to be working for Pharaoh again. Well, the cupbearer gets out of jail. And he's working with Pharaoh again. And, and Pharaoh's having this nagging dream over and over and over again. And the cupbearer says, you know, I forgot this, but I just remembered I made a promise to tell you there is this guy named Joseph. He's in jail. He can interpret your dream God's at work and so Joseph comes out he interprets the dream and he is raised to be the right hand in some sense of Pharaoh well so there's a famine everywhere and his brothers the amazing brothers his favorite brothers who threw him in the pit who sold him into slavery they show up because they need food and Joseph's there and so we see the unfolding elements of providence as Joseph is there with his brothers. And in chapter 45, in verse 4, he says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed or angry uh, with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. How does he understand the predicament that he's in? How does he understand his station in life? He says, God sent me. And he goes on. He said, for the famine that has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there'll be neither plowing nor harvest, in verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And again and again, he sees this idea that God has been providentially caught up ordering the affairs of history to preserve his covenant people. And then when you turn to chapter 50 in the end, uh, he has this statement again of, of what God is doing. Chapter 50 in verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God superintending, bending, changing, cause, causing things to happen within history so that he might be glorified, so that men and women might come to know him and to preserve his covenant people. Second example, within the book of Ruth. The short Old Testament book of Ruth. And so you have Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah. And they're, they're living in the land of Moab. And lo and behold, all of their husbands die. They all die. And so Naomi and Ruth end up venturing back into Bethlehem. And, and Naomi sharing with her how they have this person. And, and, and he could help them perhaps. And, and what we read in chapter 2 and verse 3 is that Ruth goes out. And look what it says. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come, listen to that, happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. It just so happened. God works in the happenstance of life. 
We see this over and over and over again within the course of Scripture. And because she just so happened to be gleaning in the field that belonged to Boaz, she just so happened that God was knitting his heart to her heart. And it just so happened that through this line, that through this connection, they would have a son named Obed, who would have a son named Jesse, who would have a king named David. God is intimately at work within the happenstance, the ordinary, the mundane goings-on of life. And he's still about it today. He's still about it today. When we begin to think about how things are rolling out in the book of Esther, one of the difficulties uh, that you're going to encounter is as you come to it, its placement within the Old Testament might lead you to believe that the, the events transpiring in this book are somewhat early, are somewhat early, but in actual fact, they are quite late. And so I want to talk a little bit about kind of the historical setting, what's going on, and what we find happening within the book of Esther. Uh, <coughs> what we find is that God has been mightily at work bringing all of these things to bear. You'll remember that in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, that as God is leading his people through the exodus, leading them into the promised land, he has all these things, all these blessings that he will bring to them if they will honor him. And so he has these in verses 1 through 14. But in the verse 15, he begins to turn and he describes those things that will happen if they find themselves being disobedient. And he says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So God said, if you follow me, it's going to be like this. If you disobey me and turn against me, it's going to be like this. In the verse 36, he says, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. Already, prior to entering into the land, God is communicating to them those things that will happen if they're caught up in disobedience. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and of stone. So God's describing, even in the book of Deuteronomy, those things that are going to happen to them if they find themselves caught up in the midst of disobedience. So skip forward to the 8th century in the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah is writing, and he's describing what's going to happen on the far side of, of, their, of their exile in some sense. In Isaiah 44, 24 through 28, this is how he describes Cyrus, the man who would come in and ultimately uh, depose the Babylonians and sack Babylon on October 12th of 539. Reading in verse 24 through 28, he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. No, this is prior to them going into exile in Judah, but he's describing the far side of their return. She shall be inhabited. In the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will, rise, I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, is already describing how he's going to send 
this pagan ruler to set it up so that they might come back into the land. God is mightily at work in the happenstance and in the ordinary events of life and in the extraordinary events of life. The prophet Jeremiah, writing immediately prior to the exile into Babylon, wrote these words in chapter 25 and verses 8 through 9. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, which really kind of echoes this Deuteronomy language, behold, I will send for you all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And look how he describes him, my servant. God uses foreign pagan kings, even them, to accomplish his purposes. The king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all those surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. But even in the midst of describing what he's going to do and how he's going to send them uh, forcibly into the exile, what we also see Jeremiah do is talk about how God, for his covenant people, is going to preserve them, is going to care for them, and is going to return them. Listen, in Jeremiah 29, 11, in verse, through verse 14, we don't see a promise for America, but we see a promise for God's covenant and faithful people. Listen to what he writes. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So even prior to God sending his covenant people into exile in Babylon, he says, this is what's waiting for you on the far side of 70 years. Our God is a promise-keeping God. Our God is bending actively the events of history to bring about his purpose and his goodness. And so they're sent into the land. All these years prior to the events described here in the book of Esther, Jeremiah describes God's restoration of his covenant people, and then we read of the events specifically described starting in the year 539 in Ezra, Ezra 1, 1 through 4. Within the book of Ezra, it's this, it's this fantastic deal where, again, the person who Isaiah described hundreds of years before Cyrus, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stored up, stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Listen to what he says there. Who stirred up in the heart of Cyrus? The Lord did. So God stirring up in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to take them into exile. God stirring up in the heart of Cyrus, making him look out and saying, I want to rule Babylon. So he goes into Babylon. He takes over Babylon. And then he decrees, he says, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. God uses a pagan king to rebuild his house of worship. 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts and besides the freewill offerings of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And what we'll read is that this Persian empire leverages its wealth its monies, its uh, armies to protect for the rebuilding of God's covenant people's homeland. God is actively and mightily at work in bringing about the events of history. And so we come to Esther. Now, Esther occurs somewhere around uh, 483 B.C. to 473 B.C. And, and, and we come to know this through how the book begins. Look at the first nine verses with me. He says, Now in the days of uh, Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver and, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all his staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So as we open this up, we come to no misunderstanding that the kingdom of Ahasuerus is vast. Now he says that this kingdom stretches from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces or satraps. And so this is understanding that if you were to lay out a map of today and were to look at kind of Pakistan on your east, right? So go from Pakistan on your east and then stretch all the way kind of northwest up just below Greece, and that's a touchy point for them, and, and then all the way back down south to the northern area of Sudan, this would have been all that he ruled. And so he's sitting back, and he's in this deal, and you can imagine kind of how this is written. They're like the Ahasuerus who ruled over the known world. And so if you are an Israelite living in uh, Susa, or if you are an Israelite living in, back in Israel, still you find yourself living under the rule, the reign, under the thumb of King Ahasuerus. Now this Ahasuerus is the grandson of Cyrus who came in and, and took over Babylon. And he's in there, and, and what he would have just experienced is the defeat of his father in Athens. 
And so his father Darius went into Athens and he tried to overcome the Greeks and he lost. And so Ahasuerus is a good son, is trying to think about all the failures of his father and how he can do better. And so how does he want to do better? Well, he throws this amazing party. And so they have this wild idea and this understanding that in the midst of drunkenness, they find themselves closer to the gods. And so they would have these wild parties, drink a terrific amount, and with the understanding that they would have their best ideas at the height of intoxication. And but they would have one or two guys that would stay sober so that when they sobered up, they'd come to them and be like, hey, listen, last night, I don't remember a whole lot. We're kind of in and out. It was good though, right? Tell me it was good. They're like, no, you said you're going to attack them with cotton candy. We don't even know what this is yet, and we don't think it's going to work. Uh, we heard rumors that cotton candy, when it's applied to water, just dissolves. It's a funny trick to treat a dog, but we don't think it's going to work. And so Ahasuerus is like, fine, 180 days, here we go. We're going to come up with a plan. And so 15,000 people probably in attendance at this gathering, in and out, constantly out of the kingdom. And the king wants to show them that I am the ruler over all, that I have more power than anybody else, that I have more wealth than anybody else. You need to come in and you need to see this. I am Ahasuerus and I rule the empire of the world. And that's what they thought. He's the mightiest king they could ever imagine. He's the most superior king they could ever imagine. So he throws this fantastic parties. And verse 4 says, he showed the riches of his royal glory with splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. Every day they'd come in and they'd see something else and say, oh my goodness, I, did, I literally did not know you could make that out of gold. Silver, yes. Gold, I had no idea. And this is what it was for Ahasuerus, this fantastic display of his wealth in this party and so he has this party with his 15,000 closest friends right and then at the end of this he has round two in a seven-day party and this would have really been when he has his, his military leaders developing strategy for what would be yet another attack on Greece which history tells us yet again that would fail and so he has them in there, and, and they're strategizing, and he has this amazing display of his wealth, all these gold couches, all these silver couches. History tells us that when Ahasuerus is retreating uh, from his attack on Greece, that, that they found his tent empty, and within his emptied out tent, or his, his deserted tent rather, they found silver and gold couches, and history records that they said, why would he and all of his vast wealth come here to attack the poor of Greece? And this is what he'd leave behind. This is the kind of wealth this guy had. And so he's in there, and, 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 and listen to how he says, listen to this description of the wildness of this party in verse 8. And the drinking was according to this edict, this royal wine, this wine out of gold cups. There is no compulsion. You know, don't misread this. Don't misread this to, to say that it's okay to be a wallflower at Ahasuerus' party, and it's okay to say, no, I'm, I'm good, I'm, you know, it's, it's the New Year's, and I'm just not trying to drink as much. What he's meaning in this is that there's no reason to keep your head. There's no reason not to just drink all that you can possibly stand. There's no reason to have any type of temperance. There's no reason to have any type of, of modesty in this place. Drink until you can drink no more. Drink until you pass out. This is the type of way that Ahasuerus wants to display his wealth. This is the type of way that he wants to display his power, even in their freedom. Do you hear what he says? You hear what he says? He gave an edict. He gave a rule. He made a decree 
that even in this, they should enjoy it and enjoy it to the fullest. Then parenthetically, we read that Vashti isn't there, that she has her own party going on. She has her own gathering going on. But maybe you read this and you say, that's because she was really a lady of decorum and she's going to stand for herself and she didn't want to be around that. Look at what the author of Esther says, that even her gathering was in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So he's there in his pomp. He's there in his majesty. He's showing them how incredibly powerful he is, how much wealth he has, how inferior in some sense they are, and how their lives need to be lived to bring him pleasure, need to be lived to bring him honor, and what he's building up as need to be poured out to bring him victory. So he is high on King Ahasuerus. This is like the moment in his life where everything is going right. This is the most amazing party anybody has ever thrown. It's probably the longest uninterrupted party anybody has thrown today, showing all this wealth, all this majesty, all this power, and he gets the crazy idea. He looks around, and he remembers Vashti isn't here. She's in a part of my palace, but she's not here. And look what the text tells us in verse 10. It says, on the seventh day, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now, what is he trying to tell us there? What is the author trying to tell us? He's not thinking rationally. He is wild, and he's making decisions from an inebriated state of mind. He's making a poor decision. So when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these eunuchs, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So you've got all these guys gathered around. They're engaged in any, any small, any large amount of coarse conversation talking about all the various exploits and all the various things they've done. And then Ahasuerus speaks up and he says, my wife is more beautiful than any woman you've ever laid eyes on. Where are my eunuchs? And so he sends these seven guys over. And so they're, they're rallying around. They're like, man, this party is insane. He is crazy. This is not going to go well. So they go over and they find themselves over here at Vashti's party. And they go in and their only role in life is to serve at the pleasure of the king, to fulfill his whims, to fulfill his desires. So they go in before the queen. They say, <coughs> excuse us. Just to be clear, I'm just relaying a message. But King Ahasuerus, he wants you to come in in your crown. Now, as we read this, don't have this mistaken assumption that what he wants is for her to come in all decked out in her royal splendor. What he wants is her to come in wearing just her crown. He wants her to come in and to display all of her beauty so that all of his friends can see it so that everybody can behold her stripped bare with her crown. This is the power he wants to exercise over her. 
This is the power he wants to display over another person. His heart is merry with wine. He wants you to come in, and he wants you to show all the peoples your beauty. Now listen, listen. Tremendous wealth. More powerful than any other man alive living at this time. Unrivaled armies, 2,000 personal guards at his beck and call. His wealth has been on display for six months. And when he makes this statement, this isn't a polite request. This is an instruction. He's finally met with no. He's finally met with opposition. All of his power, his practically limitless resources, a kingdom that he couldn't possibly visit every city and every person over the course of his lifetime. There were cities in his kingdoms he would never see. And at the height of the display of his power, when finally a request with him was made for his wife, she said no. And how does our mighty king, how does our powerful ruler respond to his queen saying no? It says, at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Her no exposed a terrific, soft underbelly of weakness that ran over the entirety of the course of Ahasuerus' life. Her no displayed the emptiness of his power. Her no completely undid the reality that he was trying to have people buy into. He was powerful. He was mighty. He was so incredibly wealthy. But when it came down to it, he was decidedly limited and weak in his ability to force another person to do a single thing. This king was weak. The Bible goes to great lengths to describe the wealth, the power, and the majesty of King Ahasuerus. But the Bible gives us a better king. The Bible gives us a truer king. First Chronicles 29, 11, speaking of God, says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. King Ahasuerus thought he was the head above all. He had descended from Cyrus to Darius to Ahasuerus. He would rule the world. He ruled 127 promises. He had gold this. He had silver that. He had floors that you didn't walk on. They were so nice. But he was powerless. The Bible gives us a picture that this one true king, God in heaven, really is king above all, king over all. We also see in, in, in comparison in this understanding of the king that Esther shows us for the king that we are called to serve as Christians is vastly different. 
Ahasuerus had all of these people there, and he only wanted them to serve himself. 15,000 people serving him day in, day in. I want you to enjoy yourself, and I'm mandating that you enjoy yourself. But when we read of the true king who sits in heaven, we read this of him, and it's vastly different. Mark 2, 42 through 45, speaking of the good king, says, And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers among the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus said, look, you understand it's common that people who are in charge make those under their authority to feel their authority. They make them feel their heavy hand. They make them feel the burden. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ahasuerus had an, an amazing kingdom that stretched as far as their known world, and he, but he only lived to serve himself, and he is dead. Most of us, when we encounter the name Ahasuerus, haven't heard it. Maybe you're more familiar with the name Xerxes, but still, you're not intimately familiar with the affairs of his life. He is dead. His line is dead. His, his legacy has not lived past himself. But there's this wonderful picture of Jesus who didn't live to serve, but lived to serve and died serving others. And in his death, he is alive today. Paul writes of him in Philippians 3 and verse 20 and 21 and says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all all things to himself over the course of your life you will make decisions about who sits enthroned in your heart there are those of us who are completely at home and at ease having an all-powerful visible ruler like king ahasuerus I want somebody like that sitting in the throne of my life and over all the affairs because they're just going to tell me what to do. They're just going to be in charge. They're going to they're gonna do some things that I don't appreciate. They're going to affect my life in some ways maybe I don't care for, but I just feel more comfortable having someone else be in charge. And so you're going to want someone here and now that you can reach out almost in touch, somebody visible, somebody clear, somebody understandable. For others of us, over the course of our lives, it's not a person that we want sitting and ruling over our lives, but it is our future. It is our hopes. It is our thing. And so you set for you your career, and you let your career dictate the affairs of your life, and you make all the decisions of your life and all the various ways you lead your family and you lead your life to live in submission to your career because your career reigns as king. For some of us, it's a companion. You're married, you have a husband, you have a wife, you want a husband or a wife, you're in a dating relationship. And everything in your life takes a back seat to what preserves and what protects that relationship. That relationship rules, is king in your life. For yet others, man, we 
we in all our various whims, all our various wishes, all our various desires sit on the throne of our lives. And we would say, oh, Jesus, he's involved, you see. He's affecting the affairs, leading me to make right and, and, and prudent judgments from the throne of my heart. But he doesn't sit on my heart. I sit on the, the throne of my heart. And I think all of us can see the various ways that we live out this reality. In the moments we're selfish. In the moments we're prone to anger. And in the moments we're prone to despair. Point at the reality that it is someone other than the creator God of the universe sitting on the throne of our heart. The Bible gives us a beautiful picture. And it says that Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy. He alone is worthy to sit on the throne of your heart. And he came to serve. And serving to die and dying to rise and rising to reign. To rule and reign over the universe and over your heart as well. We see in King Ahasuerus. A picture of, failed, of a failed king. But we see in the picture of Jesus a truer, a greater, and an eternal king that will not fail, that will not exalt, but who came to serve. Let us make him the ruler and sustainer of our hearts. Would you pray with me? God, you give us the book of Esther, a book in which you are not named, so that we might envision what it is to live in the happenstance of our lives. God, I pray that today, for those who have confessed the name of Jesus, they would say of themselves that I live in submission to the true King. God, would you expose the various ways that we seek to diminish the power and authority of Jesus, even as he sits upon the throne of our hearts, as he rules and reigns over the universe? Would you show us that truth? Would you cause us to repent, confessing that sin to you, and rightly restoring to Jesus all that is his? Father, I pray for those who in this hearing or in this room have not yet submitted themselves to your son, Jesus. God, they have ruled and reigned on the throne of their hearts. They've allowed others to do that. God, that today they would recognize that they are far off from you, dead in their sins, that they have violated your character and your law. They have sinned against a holy God. But you have made a provision for them, a way for them to be forgiven in the person of Jesus who came and lived and died as the penalty and the punishment for their sins. And then after his death, he rose again. And in rising again, he invites them to come and to know him and to experience the forgiveness he has won for them. 
God, would you set up your rule and reign in their hearts? Would you help them to be loved by you, to experience your presence, your goodness? We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.